This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. Really, any night of the week in this village of Portoferry, which sits on the southern edge of the Sea Loch, Strangford Loch, you could drop into a pub and just relax and enjoy this informal traditional music session. This is by night, but by day, Strangford Loch is a stretch of water that has an immense effect on the lives of the people who live in and around it. And that's what I'm here to explore for this week's Open Country. So, sitting on a small open boat with an outboard motor, just taking us out across the waters on the western edge of Strangford Lock, and I'm in the company of Michael Faulkner. Our destination is a small island just offshore called Island Moor, which is home to yourself, Michael, and your wife, Lynn. We've been home for the last um, 11 years, and um, unbelievably, because when we first came, we intended to be here for about 18 months, but one thing led to another. So, yeah, we're still here. The, the loch itself is a magnificent stretch of water. It's very boat-friendly in the sense of never getting as wild as the North Sea, for instance. We're in one of the calmest parts. So we're approaching what you call the Blue Cabin. We're coming this to the Blue home. Cabin. Home the Blue Cabin. There's a jetty. And a um, little Highland Terrier. Eddie likes to either <laughs> help me drive the boat or stand at the prow. Beautiful setting. So we have the rise of the hill behind and the movement of the water in front. And this blue, this log cabin has a long family history for you, doesn't it? Because your, did your father buy it in the first place, Brian Faulkner? My, actually, in the first place my grandfather bought it in the 1930s mm. and farmed it for a while and then he sold the lot including the cabin and uh, 20 years later in 1969 my father bought it and it's been in the family ever since. So you would have come here as a boy then for family holidays? Yeah. And I your was father was at the time involved in politics, he was the last Prime Minister in Northern Ireland in very dark, very complex times in Northern Ireland. But in his life, and in your life as a boy, he came to this place. Even in the worst times of crisis, he would find time for family. And of course, Alan Moore crossing in a small boat, getting away from uh, the world of politics, even if that was a slightly uh, ambitious thing to try to do because he's always been called back one way or another but for those precious few days I think that was really really important to him I remember arriving and the place was all a bit overgrown and the jetty was a wee bit um, rickety as it gets after every few years it has to be uh, restored a wee bit just to uh, make it safe and uh, walking up and uh, and wandering around the house and then wandering up to the top top of the hill with my brother and sister and there's a wonderful view 360 degrees around the island and, and, then across and the rest the of the loch 
and thinking that's when it strikes you for the first time that you really are on an island. But your father, if he was obviously in constant demand, and you have no electricity, you have no telephones. How, how well, did he know he was required? Let's call it on the mainland, shall we? Well, he the first there was a very rudimentary system when we first came over for the first couple of years, over by the, the old pier that we used to embark from before the days of the pontoon. There's a little cottage, lived in by a fellow called Bob Dougal, and Bob had a flagpole in his back garden. So we would cross over as a family and we'd be having a picnic on the foreshore or sitting on the veranda and my father would be reading a paper or a book. And then we would watch, we would keep an eye, half an eye on the mainland. And if the flag was raised, we knew that his presence was required. So poor Dad would have to go and gather up his gear and his briefcase and off he would go and he would have to answer some crisis. And of course that became much more intense after he became PM. Mm. Mm. That was the early 70s then, which was really, really terrible times in Northern Ireland. It was Ireland. dreadful it was very, time very, very difficult. Yeah. Can I ask then how it is you come to be living on the island, Michael? Well, I had a, I had a business, a furniture business in Edinburgh, and uh, I ran that from the early 1980s until 2001. But sadly, for one reason or another, partly because of overexpansion, uh, the furniture business went kaput and... Uh, I lost, we lost, the business and the house we were living in in central Scotland, a, far, a farmhouse in Kinrosshire. It was quite a shock. And uh, these things are... Was it then a retreat here? So, I, yeah, speaking to my mother on the phone one night, um, you know, my father obviously having died 25 years before, and uh, she said, well, the island house is there. What do you think about spending the summer there and then you can find something else in the meantime? And we said, well... Um, we could try living there year-round. And, of course, nobody had ever done that because it's very much a summer place. It's not really built for winter living. And we found when we got here that the environment is so uplifting and inspiring that Lynn, who's Lynn's a landscape artist, she paints abstracted landscapes, and that's what she... until most of her work is shown in Scotland. But when she came here, she started to become influenced by the surroundings immediately outside her studio window... Coming to the island, did you feel a sense that you could restore yourself? Because in some ways you can almost lose faith in yourself when it is so difficult. And it really knocks your confidence. You feel a tremendous sense of responsibility and almost guilt. The magic of, of Strangford is, is quite, it's quite hard to define, really. But there's a kind of cosiness which, as I say, it tempers the wildness of the island. And I think that that was one of the most restorative and inspirational sides of island life. Shall uh, we go along the yeah, foreshore? let's do that. So, we're always keeping an eye on the weather. We're aware that if there's a strong westerly wind, we're not going to be able to get off the island. That would happen several times a year. How long because have you been stuck then? Oh, no more than a couple of days. Hmm. We'll see the north end of the island as well. You could cross over anywhere here, I think, probably. You've written a lot about the island, about your life on the island. Was that for yourself? or With the Blue Cabin, with the opening chapter of the Blue Cabin, my idea was in, really to express to Lynn, formally as it were, rather like a long letter, how I understood 
what had happened because it was through no fault of hers. She had a very successful art career. Well, apart from the fact that it's a place that you sort of maybe refound yourself again and maybe your confidence yes. and zest for well, life, f- maybe find, even. Find, and find a new career in a way because yes. I mean it hadn't occurred to me to write for a living. So in a way, you have come to rest, to work, and to play. You yeah. have it all in your we, life now here. Yes, even although, though we might just yes. now be caught in the most horrendous might, downpour of rain. There's a downpour of rain <laughs> that's a blowing the wind. <laughs> Imagine your rain is snow, and the wind is a gale, and you need to get to the mainland to replenish stores or to get some firewood or some coal or whatever. It's a very different thing. So it can be. I mean, it, for Eight-tenths of the year, it's beautiful and inspiring and lovely to be midwinter. Both Lynn and I will have moments where we say, you know, how much longer could we do this? Physically, could we do this? Because it's jolly hard work just to survive, given that there are um, two boats involved in getting to the Mm -hmm. mainland, Mm -hmm. and every trip involves a soaking at the very least. Which we're going to get now, (laughs) You're going to get now. Haste you down that hill. Yes, let's get down to the (laughs) island, the cabin, rather. I don't know whether you can make out, but just on the lock here, there's lots of birds very far out. Those are the Brent geese. And on a day like this, when there's a very strong wind and the tide is very high, all we get now is an impression of little black dots on the water's surface. But actually, that's quite a large flock. There's several thousand birds out there, and what they're doing is they're waiting for the tide to go out. And then they can feed on the mudflats. You've literally got a couple of miles of mudflats here which go out and the mud is just full of life, which the uh, Brent geese feed on. And the one particular thing they go for is something called eelgrass. And it's a superfood for Brent geese. It's literally like something like spinach or something to them. They just absolutely arrive en masse and gorge themselves on eelgrass, get the energy levels back up, and then they can sort of do the onward migration. So this wonderful um, action in nature, this migration of mass populations of Brent geese happens here on Strangford Loch. And as I stand now with Andrew Upton, who's the coast and countryside manager for the the National Trust for for Strangford Loch and the Ards Peninsula, we've got all this traffic whizzing past. Do you think they have any understanding of how important these waters are as as they pass along the tarmac in their cars? People around here really appreciate just how important Strangford Loch is for wildlife. Uh, it's internationally recognised as an important wetland site and particularly the Brent geese. We have almost 90% of the global population of pale-bellied Brent geese which arrive to feed here. There's less numbers as the winter goes on but there's still at least 10 to 12,000 birds throughout the winter so it is one of the absolute wildlife spectaculars of Northern Ireland. We're at the very northern end, really, of Strangford Loch. And this would normally be what's called the quiet end, away from the rushes of the narrows at the, at the south. But uh, it's pretty rough today, Andrew. Shall we walk along the embankment yeah. here? I mean, obviously, I know from your accent that you're not local to Northern Ireland, but can you remember when you first saw this mass population of the, of the Brent geese and, and what it felt like to see it? I just couldn't believe when I actually first saw the sight of seeing so many birds in one location and them actually just lifting off into the air and the noise and the sounds of the geese. 
as they sort of circled and then came back down onto the mudflats to feed. It was absolutely breathtaking and it is one of the things that everyone in the area looks forward to each year. Not just the, the geese, but there are other birds out there as well now. I see a few rising from the surface of the water. There's a whole range of uh, wintering water birds here, uh, various waterfowl like shell duck, widgeon, and then wading birds like redshank, oyster catchers, dunlins. Strangford Lark is the 12th most important wetland site in the whole of the UK. So it's internationally important for these birds, which largely nest in sort of Siberia, the Arctic, and then they come down to Strangford Lock to spend the winter here because it's full of life and it's much milder here, although sometimes we don't feel that. And there's space for them all because getting a sense of the scale of this lock, it really just takes a moment or two to, to realise the vastness of this stretch of water. Strangford Lock is the largest sea lock in the whole of the British Isles. It's huge and it's all landlocked apart from the very narrow outflow called the Narrows where literally all this water goes in and out of twice a day. Uh, it's something like eight, 7 or 8 million cubic metres of water goes through the Narrows each, each day. Yeah. The whole of the lock is salt water so um, it's what brings in all the birds here. Um, because it's salt water, it doesn't freeze over easily. So it's very good for birds coming in. They can sort of come and feed and roost here. If you travel the full length of the Ards Peninsula, past Port of Ferry, right down to its most, most southern point, you can look out across the rocky foreshore I can see now, which is the tide has exposed. And as I walk along this farm lane, um, I'm hoping to meet some National Trust um, staff but also a group of volunteers because with an area as large as Strangford Lock and the surrounding landscape it's a lot of management involved and just as I come towards the shore there's a, a band of six of them they're fixing a fence a bit more hold it there, stop there there's some very careful measurements going on here and it's Alan Silcock isn't it you're a yeah, that's National correct. Trust Ranger. So, what's the job in hand, Alan? We're installing a new style here today. It's really to keep the livestock into the field and to allow public access across this field. And people will cross the stile, and can they get onto the rocky foreshore down here at Ballyquinton Point? Yeah, we can, and it's one of our main key jobs to try and provide access to for the general public to come out and experience the environment like this and come and see the wildlife and, and come out for a walk into the countryside. Because it's really the raw, rough, rugged end of Strangford Lock in a way, isn't it, as it opens out into the Irish Sea? Yeah. It's got a different character about it altogether. Yeah, Strangford Lock's so variable. The Vikings haven't called it Strangford, Strongfjord. You can, you can really see that it's both of those things at the same time, depending on what part of the lock you are, really, I suppose. So you have to uh, drill screws into the bars of wood but you're doing this with volunteers which we are certainly we we manage we manage a, a wide area from the very tip of the arch peninsula here the whole way up to belfast lock and including the a number of islands on the water and there's no way we can manage this by ourselves we really heavily rely on volunteers uh, like the group out today to get jobs done no, but alan's been here a long time uh, done uh, over 13 months. 14 months? 14 months. 14 months now, yeah. What, volunteering all that time? Yes. Why? 
Why? Uh, so I can get a job. I did zoology at university. That's uh, in Glasgow, as you might be able to tell from my accent. But um, it's been quite difficult trying to find something. So difficult. getting this practical hands-on experience mm-hmm. is good for you. Oh, yeah. wouldn't be doing it if I didn't enjoy it. But also just a great variety of work I get here. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything from like pulling up stellas like we're doing today or counting Brent geese around the loch or um, seal counts, of course. In Porto Ferry, there, there is a ferry that goes between here and the other side of Strangford at the Narrows. But here in Porto Ferry, if you come down past the port, climb over this fence and down onto the foreshore, it's, um, it's a lovely place to get a little bit closer to the water. And down here is Jen Firth. Jen, it's, it's quite something to be able to meet you down here as we squelch away across the seaweed. <laughs> Very soggy and slippery. Yeah. Because you are, I think you're Northern Ireland's first marine ranger. Um, the Department of the Environment have just set up this appointment recently, haven't they? I was appointed under the new marine division, which is part of the Department of Environment, and they will deal with everything um, under the sea and up to the high tide mark in terms of planning and conservation and monitoring. But it wasn't happening before. It's a big step forward. A lot of other places in the world have rangers. We have some wardens around here, but they're not dedicated to um, the protection of the site. And Strangford Lock is one of the most protected marine areas in Northern Ireland, so it's much needed. So why, why did it happen? How did the position come up? We have a marine bill, which has just come in very recently, and that has been turned into a marine act for Northern Ireland. And part of that act is to put more emphasis on the conservation of protected sites like this. So Strangford Lock has just become our first marine conservation zone in Northern Ireland. And having that extra protection makes it one of the most protected sites probably in Europe. It's also because we have a very special habitat here called a Modiolus biogenic reef. Oh my goodness. And that is simply a horse mussel reef. So horse mussels are just a bigger version of the blue mussel, but they create these biogenic reefs, almost like the coral reef, which other animals and plants can live in. And in the past, that habitat was damaged by fishing and recreational activities. And a complaint was put into Europe to say that this has happened and it's not being protected. So part of the measures to restore the habitat was to bring me in and help with the restoration and the monitoring of the damage to the lock. But should we walk along a little yep. bit? Even though it's pouring with rain. <laughs> it's still quite special. And then if we were lucky enough today, Jen, I don't know if it's going to work in this weather, but it has a great seal population, doesn't it? Yeah, we have one of the biggest seal populations in Northern Ireland here, especially the harbour seal, um, which breeds in the lock. And so does the grey seal, but we've got lots more harbour seals than greys because they like the sheltered areas in the loch rather than the more exposed coastline. So where would you find the seals hauling themselves up? Mostly you'll see them hauled out on the rocky outcrops in the middle of the loch. And then when you go into the very middle of the loch, you'll see these little isolated islands which will be totally covered in seals. Um, And that's at low tide when they haul out to have a rest. 
but they need the right sort of weather conditions, I suspect, yes. They're a bit like us. They don't like coming out in bad weather because if they want to rest, there's no point trying to battle the elements. So they stay under the water and they'll put their noses up into the up to the surface and we call that bottling because it looks like a bobbing bottle on the surface of the water and that's how they breathe. Looks like we have an oyster catcher up ahead. And then what's that beyond it? There's um, like a structure in the water. Yeah, that's a, that's a rig. At the minute they're testing another renewable device in the lock called a sea kite. And it's basically an underwater type of turbine that makes a figure of eight motion under the water with the currents. Strangford Lock's quite good for testing these small scale devices because of the strong currents and the tides. There already is one actually. If we look back up the lock through the narrows, you can see this like a pillar protruding up from the very centre of the waterway. That's a turbine too, isn't it? Yeah, that's the marine current turbine. We're testing that one as well. It's been here for a number of years now. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You've got new technology for renewables. You've got the ancient horse muscle on the seabed. You've got humans who live, work and play round Strangford. It's uh... a lot of pressure. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot, there's a lot of pressure on the lock, but one of the reasons I'm here is to try and find the balance between sustainability and, you know, people making a living out of the lock. And it's really important because we don't want to stop people from coming here. We want them to come and use it, but we also want them to learn how to use it without damaging it. It's really just we're putting into practice what we already do on land. So you have planning permissions and things on land. It's very well regulated, but we've never had that in the sea, and now we do. It's lovely hearing you play the flute. You're just part of a really informal, traditional session. And you gather together in the local pub, anywhere in the town, play. It, it tends to be like that anywhere here, <laughs> anywhere in Ireland. You know, it's a, it's an informal thing. Um, it's the, it's maybe the best aspect of traditional music. You're Ben Healy, yeah. but your dad plays in it as well. Was he on the Tin Whistle? Yes, he plays Tin mm. Whistle. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, he's been playing for I don't know thirty years maybe. We've been exploring the loch, about um, what the loch is for people, um, its special qualities, how people live on it, they work around it. For young people like yourself, Ben, is it quite hard to be able to stay in a place like this to find the work? I think um, being in a rural area anywhere is hard for younger people with uh, work being the primary reason I suppose people move and the secondaries we're talking about. Um, the price of housing mm. and those two things together obviously make people move to cities but the lock in itself is quite a quite a pool I think on certainly people who have grown up here and that keeps people and it's hard to maybe to leave that behind and when if you do you know you move away for a while it does people tend to come back you know most, <laughs> most things I've done professionally or socially have involved in some way the sea to keep you here yeah, that's what keeps you here, um, I suppose. Um, playing the music, being with the people in the pub, playing it, does it have a special meaning for you? You know, you're meeting up and you're sharing sort of, you know, culture that you're all mutually interested in. And it's culture that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, the, the music you were listening to could be a tune that was composed 80 years ago or a tune that was composed in 1624. And there are people who live and work around the loch as you do. 
I think everyone, everyone playing music with us tonight would be involved with the, the sea, either directly through work or in their spare time. So it is it's quite astounding that they all live, they work and they play, as we hear, within sight and sound of Strangford Loch. Within about uh, 25 feet. <laughs> <laughs>